only source of true delight whom I unseen adore Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more Oh that I might love thee more You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 22, verse 63, to Luke chapter 23, verse 25. If you'd like to follow along in your blue pew Bible... It is on page 883. Luke 22, 63 to 23, 25. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought, this man, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. 
A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that the demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us ask the Lord to bless us as we study his word together. Lord, these are, um, these are amazing accounts. We can't fathom that um, the one who stood before Pilate and Herod, the one who was jeered and mocked and blindfolded folded and beaten and scourged and crucified, was none other than the Son of God himself one of unlimited dignity and royalty, uh, treated in this way. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see by your Holy Spirit the glorious Messiah revealed here, the glory of this one who acted on our behalf in all of this. Lord, may we be more in awe of you more devoted to you, adore you more, make you known more. O Lord, give us of yourself. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. This is, as I alluded to in my prayer, one of the most difficult passages to read when you think about the one who is brought before these leaders. You think about the unlimited power of Jesus. John tells us that when the authorities came into the garden to arrest him, And they asked, where is Jesus? And Jesus said, I am he, that they all fell on their backs. Just a word from him, and everyone collapses. And as he said earlier in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. We we must see, as, as we'll look at this more in detail, but this tremendous irony that if you've been reading Luke up to this point, you realize what's been revealed about him as the Son of God, even in his birth, declared the King, the Messiah himself, and the predictions that he would suffer, and now he's into this suffering, and the wonder, the amazement that this glorious being is now undergoing such treatment willingly, of his own accord. And so it begins to raise questions. What is going on here? What is happening? So it's important to see that this just isn't an account 
of what happened, but it's a declaration on Luke's part of who this is. It's a declaration, a proclamation to us, to all people everywhere, of this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, it's a proclamation in this passage that this one is innocent. Okay? That comes out so clearly in the passage. It's revealed that whatever is being done to him, he himself is innocent of the charges. You see this right away when they, after coming to the Sanhedrin, and by the way, just to think of the sections here, it's pretty easy. It's the Sanhedrin, then Pilate, Herod, and then the sentencing. That's from Pilate as well. But that's a good way to think of it. S-P-H-S, okay? The Sanhedrin, then they go to, he goes to Pilate, then he goes to Herod, and then there's the sentencing of Jesus. But when he comes before Pilate, the statement in verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Now, they're trying to make it appear that he is causing sedition, which is punishable by crucifixion. They're, they're going for the death penalty. They're going for crucifixion. And so they accuse him of sedition. Interestingly, if they're really concerned about sedition, why would they want Barabbas, who is a seditionist and who has committed murder and insurrection, why would they want him freed? Of course, it shows the whole thing is a sham. But they're trying to stick Jesus with that accusation. They say he's misleading our nation. And then this teaching somehow, that wouldn't get it with the authorities. But then they're forbidding us to give tribute. They're saying he's a king. He says he's a king. You see, he's an alternative uh, emperor to uh, Caesar. And so he stirs up the people. He's seeking sedition. Then he goes before Herod. Herod gets no answer from Jesus. Jesus realizes there's no point to say a word before this wicked man. And then again, in verse thir- uh, beginning with verse 13, he said, You brought me this man after examining him. In verse 14, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Neither did Herod. He's innocent. I will therefore punish and release him. They cry out, give us Barabbas, crucify him. A third time he says, what evil has he done? I've found in him no guilt deserving death. What's clear in this is that the Jewish leaders, and they're the common thread through all four of these scenes. It's the Jewish leadership pressing their case, pressing their case, Finally, they win the case. As verse 23 indicates, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. By this time, all of the people are involved, have submitted to the leadership, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate condemned him. Now, this doesn't get Pilate off the hook because it's obvious he's simply pleasing the masses against justice. And he knew what he was doing. He knew that this man was not innocent. Was innocent. He knew that this man did not deserve the punishment that was going to be given him. 
But he didn't care at that point. All he wanted was peace. All he wanted was to satisfy these raging crowds. And so you had the wickedness of the Jewish leadership. You had the wickedness of the Roman leaders. And we don't need to stand outside and say, oh, look at the Jews. The, the, the scriptures look at the church as one, Old and New Testament. And it's an us. It's look what we, the people of God, did to Messiah. Look what we are when God comes to us. Look what we do by nature when God reveals His glory and beauty to us. And we will all do that, save for God's grace in our life. Because there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. Even those who say, I do seek for God, by nature, if they're left to themselves, when God really shows up, they'll say, no, that's not what I wanted. (laughs) That's not the God that I picked. So all the Jews would have said, oh, yeah, we worship God. We love God. We are Yahweh followers. But when Yahweh showed up in flesh and blood, they hated him. And so if we love God, if we submit to him, if we receive Jesus Christ, it is only because of the grace of God that has worked in our hearts Else we ourselves, to the man, to the woman, to the boy, to the girl, we will say, no. We will, we are what what Paul says, there is none of us who seeks God by nature. And you want to see your heart by nature? Here it is. This is your heart and my heart by nature. And that's why we all humble ourselves before God and thank Him that He moved us to want Him. He moved us and revealed Christ to us to want Him, or else we ourselves, in a sense, would say, crucify Him. And even those who name the name of Christ, the danger is, as the writer of Hebrews says, that we would turn away from Him and deny Him and leave Him and no longer trust Him for our salvation and no longer depend upon Him but strike out on our own. And he says, in so doing, we would trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. It's another version of crucify Him. is to disdain that blood. To say the spent blood of Jesus Christ means nothing to me. It will not be my trust. I will not give my allegiance to him. I will not put my life in his hands. Things become radical when God sacrifices his son for, for sinners. Things are radical at that point. If we don't receive him, we become those who in a sense spit upon him and defile him and trample upon the blood spent for sinners. It is serious when God spends the life of his son for sinners. It's glorious. It's glorious. But you get a little bit of the feel when Paul says, we proclaim him. This is at the end of uh, 2 Corinthians 2. And he says, but we tremble, we are in awe, because as we proclaim him, it's death to death for some and life to life for others. And he says, who is adequate for these things? 
How can we even hold up with the the things that are at stake as we proclaim this truth? And it is death for some and it is life for others. And for all of you sitting here, every single one of you, this message is life or death. Life or death for every human being here because God has sacrificed his son. Well, he's proclaimed as innocent. And Luke is using this statement by Pilate to proclaim his innocence to us. Uh, the angel, when she, when the angel describes to Mary this one that's going to be born of her, he, he describes him as the holy one without sin, the sinless one. Even the demon in Luke 4.34 says, you are the holy one from God. Pure, unadulterated. Even the thief on the cross in the next chapter says to his fellow thief, or later in this chapter, he says, do you not fear God? Because he was uh, pronouncing vindictives against him. And he, at this point he said, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked and said, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We justly for re- receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Luke's proclamation. This is an innocent man. The centurion, when he died later in verse 47, he says, certainly this man was innocent. That's the message here. This man arrested, condemned everything about the passage from Pilate, from demons, from a thief, from a centurion. This is an innocent man. It's the message of the whole New Testament. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, he's a lamb without blemish or spot. Or John in 1 John 3, in him there is no sin. Or the writer of Hebrews 4.15, tempted as we, yet without sin. The sinless one, the innocent one. And all of this is happening to him. So it is a proclamation of his innocence, which is a vital aspect of his being proclaimed as the Messiah. And isn't it interesting that he ends up being proclaimed Messiah by the rulers themselves? Because as it says in uh, verse 68, he says, uh, if you are the Christ, tell us. If I tell you, you will not believe, verse 67. If I ask you, you will not answer. But then he declares himself, verse 69, For now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Right before the Sanhedrin. And if we had time, we would delve into that as well, what he means by this. But he's declaring his own glory, his own power. He's he's proclaiming his own ultimate exaltation from God. Therefore, that he is God's man. He is the Messiah. He is the ruler proclaimed by the angel to Mary. And he will sit at the right hand of the power of God. And they said, are you the son of God? Then he says, you say that I am. He said, yes, and you're saying it. It's like you've declared it. It is true. I am the son of God. Another term for Messiah, the Christ. 
And he declares himself as the king, uh, even with Pilate there, when he asks him, are you the king? So you say. So this is the innocent one, the king, the Messiah, proclaimed by Luke. And yet, he is the one condemned. And that is, that is the, the, the innocent man is condemned. Now there's a great irony here because here are these wicked people acting in the face of the divine purpose acting against God's own Messiah and yet accomplishing the divine purpose for His Messiah. What an incredible, in some ways, frightening lesson to anyone who will fight against God, that God accomplishes His purpose no matter what. Here they are, employing all of their energy and all of their ingenuity, staying up all night to try to devote themselves to make sure this man is put to death and so that this thing is completely stamped out. And the very thing they do is ordained by God. It has been predicted by Jesus Christ. And through this death and then the subsequent uh, resurrection of Christ, the planting of the church in its New Testament form begins and the spread of the gospel bursts forth from the very things they are seeking to do. That is astounding. The very effort to stop God's purpose explodes God's purpose. The very things they, they meant to destroy Christ and His followers Uh, It explodes Christ and his followers, so to speak, uh, throughout the whole known world. So there's a a tremendous irony here. There's a word that's used throughout the New Testament. It's a word, the Greek word is paradidomi, but it's the word didomi is give, and then para is to, to give over. So it can, it can mean to give over, uh, or it can even mean to betray. And it's the word used, the word delivered or to give over, it's the word used about Christ being given over to the authorities. It's used, for instance, back in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus begins to make his predictions about his own suffering. He begins talking about it in verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 9, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then later in verse 44, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So he would be betrayed or delivered or put into, given over into the hands of of men. Later in verse 18, uh, chapter 18, it gets very explicit here. And the details are given. As they're headed for Jerusalem, Jesus says in verse 31 of Luke 18, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So all of this does it, it's not just a new idea, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. 
We're seeing the divine purpose proclaimed in the prophets being worked out here. So Jesus says what the prophets, is said in the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered, there's that word, over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Laying it out in some pretty careful detail. These are all the things that are going to happen to me. And it was very important in the whole scheme of things, in the proclamation of Christ, that he wasn't just ambushed along the way. For instance, if he had just, if these soldiers had come, these authorities had come into the garden and just killed him by the sword right there, it wouldn't have accomplished the divine purpose because the divine purpose is to proclaim to us an innocent man has been condemned, legally sentenced to death innocently. That was part of the divine plan for the physical, earthly proclamation of his guilt and condemning him to death. An innocent man would be reflective of the fact that one innocent without sin is bearing sin on our behalf. You see, it's proclaiming to us. That's why he was not just killed some way, somehow. But the prophets had predicted what would happen. And Jesus here is announcing, I will be delivered over and all these things will happen and I will be crucified. There was, in that sense, no chance that he would fall by the sword. No chance that there would be a dagger somewhere along the way and he'd just be killed and that would be it. No. This is how it was going to happen. There was one time in, earlier in Luke when he had uh, proclaimed himself as Messiah and said that, that this passage in Isaiah now has come true in me, that they took him to a cliff to throw him over the cliff. And it says, he just walked out between them. How did that happen? All these people had him in their arms and about to throw him over, and then suddenly, you know, arms fall and Jesus turns and he just walks out of there. That wasn't, that wasn't when he was going to die. And that's not how he was going to die. He was going to die as he chose, as he himself had ordained. God had planned how it would happen. And it's going to be accomplished in that particular way. Later in chapter 20, it talks about the, the, the Jewish authority's effort to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Their effort to deliver him to Pilate for his death. Interestingly, later in chapter 22, it talks about Judas going away and conferring with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. That's the same word, how Judas might deliver him into the authorities' hands. The same thing in verse 6 and later in that chapter 22. Jesus himself says, Behold the hand of him who betrays me, who delivers me over, is at table. And later... In chapter 22, verse 45, Jesus says, no, it's not 45, it's, um, 
think it's in chapter 23, but the statement that he will deliver him over um, to... I'm sorry. There's a statement about Pilate and how Pilate is going to deliver him over. But the point about this, this word deliver, is that it's the same word used later in the New Testament. For instance, in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, when it says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's purposeful that this very word is used. Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions. In fact, it says in Romans 8.32, How shall he not, he who delivered him up for us all, So amazingly, wonderfully, shockingly, in all of this delivering up into their hands so that they could do with Him as they chose, it was the Father delivering the Son up for our sake. According to the prophets, it was being accomplished for our sake. And so it was the divine purpose as Jesus said back in chapter 18, and as he comes to them after he was raised from the dead, it's what's underscored by the angel himself as they come in chapter 24 to find Jesus. The angel says, remember, what the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day arise. And then Jesus, when he appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says, are you slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? It was necessary that the Messiah should suffer and enter into his glory. And then when he told them what to proclaim, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets must be fulfilled. And you're to proclaim that the it is written that the Christ should suffer. So in all of this, it was what the prophets had proclaimed, what God was going to accomplish. And so God delivered up his son for our sake. Amazingly. And this same Luke records Paul's own sermon in chapter 13 of Acts. Same author, Luke, proclaiming this Christ. And he proclaims Christ through these events. And then he uses Paul to proclaim this Christ. And so Paul, in his sermon, says, Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. There's Paul's statement. They didn't understand these statements, but they fulfilled the prophets by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. So you see the wonder of it all, the divine purpose carried out in all of these terrible, horrible human actions to accomplish salvation for our sake. And so twice, early in Acts, as they are praying on one hand and proclaiming Christ on another, they said, 
Everybody was gathered together to do what your hand had predestined to occur. God in this is working out our salvation through this arrest, through this innocent man being condemned, standing in our place. That's why it specifically says in in Peter, he died the righteous for the unrighteous. 1 Peter 3.18. Or Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And it's just pictured right before your eyes in a very physical, tangible way in an earthly court. Clearly innocent and condemned to death to help. It's kind of like a sacrament in that regard to help you understand that's what he did for me. I'm the one that was guilty. He's the one that knew no sin. He became sin on my behalf. And some of you may be saying, yeah, but did the prophets really talk about him bearing our sin, that kind of thing? And here's a passage that sometimes has been quoted to Jewish people, and they think, well, I don't believe in the New Testament. Don't quote me the New Testament. But this is the Old Testament. It says, we regarded him as stricken and smitten down by God. We looked at him and thought, God has cursed him. God is against him. But... He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why is he condemned by Pilate outwardly, though he's innocent? Because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes, by his scourging, by his abuse and mocking, by his outward punishment, that is a picture of the awful wrath of God that has fallen on him. That is how we are healed. The innocent one stands in our place. And I urge you, if you're... thinking about appearing before God apart from this sacrifice for you. To stand before God and say, you know, I'm just going to take my chances when I appear before God. And I think God and me will be okay. That even when sin was put upon His own Son, your human sin, what happened to Him? Was he spared before the Father? Did the Father have mercy even on his own son? No. His own son was condemned brutally, horribly, viciously. He bore our wrath. Not only outwardly, but he bore the very wrath and punishment due to sin, but shown in such a shocking outward fashion as we see here. And again, will you turn away from this who has this one who has sacrificed for you? This one who has spilled his blood for you, who was condemned on your behalf innocently so that you might re- be regarded by God as innocent? That's the wonder. 
that now through Christ, as you trust in Him and are associated with Him, you can be regarded as innocent before God. You can have the righteousness of Christ so associated with you that you are now received by God as though you yourself are righteous because you are united to Jesus Christ and His perfection, His innocence. We must have a sacrifice for sin. And Christ is the one that the Father Himself has provided for us. Otherwise, you will trample underfoot the blood of Christ. One last thing for believers. Peter comes to this event as he talks about slaves suffering unjustly. And he says, follow the example of Jesus Christ. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, there's another use of this word delivered And Paul uses it in Galatians 2 when he says, The Son of God loved me and delivered himself up for me. Isn't that wonderful? That in the betrayal of Judas, in the giving up of Jesus into the hands of all these men, what was really happening? Jesus was delivering himself up for you. For you. For your sake. In Ephesians, Paul uses this. He delivered himself up for us that he might save us. And he showed us. And in this passage, it says he's delivering himself up to the Father even when he's being treated unjustly. And I hope this will help you when you're treated unfairly, when you suffer unjustly, or even in a lesser sense, when you suffer, period. And you think, why me? Look to the Lord Jesus. Look to this one who delivered himself into his father's hand and entrusted himself to his father's care even when he was being hated and abused and mocked and he had unlimited dignity and glory and perfection and righteousness and still he was hated unjustly. It should do so much in your heart to dissolve that sense of pride and injustice and that sense of this shouldn't be happening to me. To fold yourself in and walk in the footsteps of Christ and realize as God brought about a glorious ending for Christ in the resurrection, He will bring about glory and resurrection and dignity and even reign one day with Jesus Christ for you no matter what you suffer in this world. No matter what you suffer, you're destined for everlasting dignity united with this Lord Jesus Christ. Let's walk in his footsteps. Let us pray. O Lord, we honor you, O innocent one, the one the writer of Hebrews says that is separated from sinners, holy and undefiled, You have offered yourself up 
You were an unblemished Lamb of God on our behalf that we might have a true sin offering, a perfect sin offering. O Lord, the Father, deliver you, O Lord God, you delivered up your Son for us. O Lord Jesus, you delivered yourself up for us that we might have forgiveness, that we might have transformation, that we might have resurrection, that we might have everlasting life in the new heavens and new earth. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for delivering yourself up for us. We praise you for your sovereignty that even when man does his worst, you still accomplish the very best things for your people. May we trust you then in all circumstances, Lord. You work all things together for good. No matter what evil is done, you are in control of all situations. You are bringing about your purposes and no one can stand against your purpose. We rejoice in such a Lord, such a God, such a salvation, such a future O Lord, give us grace to proclaim the glorious truth of this great Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?